Well, good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. So about two months ago, we started reading in the book of Exodus, and we finished things up this morning. Kind of recapping what we've read. We read that God heard the Israelites' cries as they suffered under Egyptian slavery. Then he remembered the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back in the book of Genesis. He called Moses to lead these people into the promised land. But really, it's not Moses who did the heavy lifting. It's God. God's the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's the one who sent catastrophic plagues. He's the one who marked Israel for redemption with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. And he's the one who led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as we saw last week, it's God who provided food and water for the Israelites as they moved through the wilderness. Even though in their hunger and thirst, they repeatedly failed to trust and obey him. But as we finish up today, there's over 20 chapters left in the book of Exodus. On top of that, there are other stories in books like Deuteronomy and Numbers about these wilderness years that are not included in Exodus. So how could we possibly cover all that ground in a single sermon? How could we possibly finish up this story? Well, we're not going to totally finish up the story. We won't read every single verse of Exodus or Deuteronomy or Numbers. Instead, we're going to focus on three major events that shape the rest of the book of Exodus. And as we read about these three events, I think we're going to see a repeated theme, a common thread that holds these three events together. So open up to Exodus 19, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take one home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege we have of coming together and worshiping you. We all come from different places, different experiences, different things have happened to us this week. Some of us have had wonderful weeks where we're tempted to think that maybe we don't need you as much. And some of us have had really horrible weeks where we've wondered if you're there or we've wondered if you're really caring for us. And then some of us are just going through life as normal. Not bad, not good, just routine maybe even boring. But I pray that regardless of wherever it is that we're coming from, whatever happened to us this past week, I pray that we would recognize the joy and the privilege we have of worshiping you. Thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for familiar faces, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for new faces that we have the the joy of welcoming here today. Father, I pray that our worship would be honoring to you. I pray that you would Minister to us through your word, giving us the encouragement or the challenge or the comfort or the conviction that you know we need. And Father, we trust that your word is faithful and powerful to provide it. And Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the one who brings us all together here. Uh, He's the one we have in common. He's the one who saves us. And Father, it's because of him that we can come into your presence, as we'll see more here in a few minutes. Again, Lord, we love you. We praise you, we honor you, we glorify you, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first event we'll cover this morning in the book of Exodus is one of the most recognizable in all of Scripture. 
And that's when God gives his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Even someone who never opens the Bible and someone who spends very little time in a church probably has some basic familiarity with this event. They likely know that there are ten particularly famous commandments within this larger law. They probably know that it happened on top of a mountain. They probably know that it was written on stone tablets at one point. And they may even be able to rattle off one or two or even three of those Ten Commandments. But it's important to note that the Ten Commandments and the entire Old Testament law in general is not just a list of rules. God's law is the primary way he revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament. And on top of that, when God gives the Israelites his law at Mount Sinai, he's making something else clear. He's making it clear that they belong to him now. They are his people. They are his representatives. And as his people, his representatives to the entire world, the Israelites should have some idea of what God is like. They should have some idea of what he expects of them. And that's where the law comes in, starting in chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then reading chapter 20, verse 2, God introduces himself by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who I am, Israelites, and you now belong to me. And in order for the Israelites to represent God well, they need to know a few things. And that's where the Ten Commandments come in. They need to know that he alone is God. No other God besides him. And that no image could possibly do him justice. They need to know that his name is holy and should not be thrown around flippantly. They're commanded to rest on the seventh day because God rested on the seventh day of creation. They are to honor their parents, respect human life, honor the sanctity of marriage, refuse to steal, speak the truth, and not be ruled by jealousy. All these things reflect God's character, and the Israelites are called to reflect God's character themselves. Now, these laws will provide a sense of order for this fledgling Israelite nation. It will make them stick out from the world around them. And because God gives them these rules, that means the Israelites don't have to guess about who he is. 
They don't have to speculate about what he's like. They don't have to wonder what he expects of them. He makes it clear. He makes it obvious. He tells them. Leviticus 19 verse 2 puts it quickly, shortly, memorably. God says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's who I am, and that's what I expect of you. Now, there are a million more things that could be said about God giving the law on Mount Sinai. But that's just a bird's eye view of this event. And at face value, it seems relatively simple at first, doesn't it? God's told the Israelites who he is and what he expects of them. If they do this, they will live. And if they don't do this, they will die. The Israelites seem to be okay with this. They think it all makes sense. They agree with it enough to formally agree to the rules that God set in place. Exodus 24, verse 3, we read there. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then the second half of verse 7, chapter 24. All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Okay, sounds pretty good. Sounds like a good setup. But then we get to event number two, what's sometimes referred to as the golden calf. Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, no, he didn't. Moses did not bring them up. God brought them up. He's made that clear, but they missed that. As for this Moses, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Again, getting that wrong once again. Verse 5, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. As we saw last week when they got hungry and thirsty, the Israelites are a stubborn, temperamental people who will not hesitate to turn on Moses and turn on God when they see fit. The moment things get hard, they will betray Moses and betray God. And this golden calf is just one of the most infamous illustrations of this principle throughout the entire Bible. But it happens again and again and again, at different times in different ways. As soon as the Israelites got tired of waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai, 
I mean, who knows? Maybe he ran off somewhere. Maybe he died. As soon as they get tired of watching the clock, they break the rules that God just gave them. They violate the covenant that they just entered. Remember chapter 24. All this we will do, and we will be obedient. Sounded better on paper than it does in practice. So they come to Aaron, who also deserves his fair share of blame for this whole debacle, and demand that he make them gods. Again, didn't God say something about that in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other god before me. You shall not worship any image. I think he did. But God sees their sin. He sends Moses down to confront them. Moses graciously intercedes on the sinful Israelites' behalf, and God doesn't abandon them. But that doesn't mean there won't be consequences. They are punished with a plague, but God mercifully spares them from complete destruction. So recapping what we've covered so far. First, God gives the Israelites the law. That's event number one. Then the Israelites promptly break that law. That's event number two. And that brings us to our third event, the one most commonly overlooked when you set it next to the first two. But this third event is incredibly significant in the Old Testament and carries over greatly to the New Testament. And on top of that, this third event is a good segue into the theme that holds these three passages together. So what is our third and final event? It's the building of the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1. We read there. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may make for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. This is the first church building project, by the way. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, the stuff you find at Lowe's, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. There was already a tent of meeting where Moses would go in to speak with God. But now a more formal dwelling place for God, a central location for the life of Israel's worship is commanded. And this tabernacle will be much more ornate than your average tent. But unlike a permanent temple, it can move with the Israelites as they travel. So they get to work. They start building. God gives detailed instructions about the size, the materials, the decorations, the contents, and the function of this tabernacle. And all the Israelites contribute in some way. Two craftsmen named Bezalel and Aholiab play a unique role. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, verses 16 through 19, the tabernacle's done. 
Verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month and the second year, on the first day of the month, anytime you read something like that in the Bible, you know it's an important event. In the first month and the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So for one final recap, we have three core events that dominate the second half of the book of Exodus. Number one, the giving of the law. Number two, the golden calf. And then number three, the building of the tabernacle. All three of these events are theologically and biblically significant in their own rights. And there could be tons of Bible studies and tons of sermons about each one of these passages. But what is the repeated theme? What is the common thread that holds them all together? And why does it matter to us? Well, all three of these events teach us something about God's holiness. And they teach us something about our sin. When God gave the law to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, God stressed that a certain distance had to be kept between him and the people. At first, only Moses was allowed on top of the mountain. No one else could even touch the base of the mountain under penalty of death. Eventually, God would graciously allow Aaron and his sons to come up as well, along with Joshua, Moses' assistant, and some of the elders of Israel. But even then, God was still very specific about the boundaries that had to be kept between him and sinners. It's true that God has been in the Israelites' presence, in a sense, earlier in the book, when he appeared in the cloud and fire. And chapter 24 does say that Moses, Aaron and his sons, and the elders get a tiny taste of God's presence and glory. The text describes it as if they saw God's feet. But even then, they don't see God in all of his fullness. They don't get to enter God's presence in the truest sense. Later in chapter 3, Moses asks to see God's glory. Chapter 33, rather. Moses wants to get the full experience of God's holy presence, but God only allows him to see his back. Not even Moses. Moses, not even he can truly, fully experience the glorious, holy presence of God. So that raises the question, why the distance? Why the separation between God and man? Well, the reason for the distance is mankind's sin. And event number two, the golden calf, is definitive proof. You know, really, Israel deserved far worse than they got for that act of rebellion. They got a severe plague, which is nothing to sneeze at. But they really deserved total annihilation. They deserved complete and permanent separation from God. And the only reason they didn't get that is because of God's faithfulness and God's grace. 
And again, this golden calf is just one small illustration of mankind's sin that keeps popping up as you read the Bible. It just doesn't seem to go away. And when you set our undeniable and repeated sin next to God's perfect holiness, you see the reason for the distance between the two. And then event number three, the tabernacle, only reaffirms that distance. Only Moses and Joshua could enter the tent of meeting before the tabernacle was built. And when Moses would come out, his face would shine from speaking with God, and the people were afraid. So Moses would start wearing a veil over his face when he spoke with the Israelites. In their sin, they could hardly even look at Moses after he's been anywhere close to God. And when the tabernacle was finished, which would eventually give way to the permanent temple, there continued to be distance between God and man. God would continue to enforce specific rules about who could go where, when they could go there, all to maintain this sense of separation between his holiness and our sin. Now this theme, our inability to be in God's full, glorious, holy presence because of our sin, this theme doesn't just tie these three events in the book of Exodus together. It pervades scripture from beginning to end. Think back to the Garden of Eden. After they sinned, the first thing Adam and Eve did when they heard God coming into their presence was hide. They hid. Even before God confronted them about what happened, they seemed to understand that because of what they had done, they were no longer worthy to be in God's presence. Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel fell on their faces when they had visions of God's presence. When Isaiah realized where he was and what he was seeing, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, Isaiah is saying, I shouldn't be here. I have no business being here. Why not? Because Isaiah knows that he is a sinner and that God is holy. And sin does not belong in God's presence. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, give us a question and an answer. The question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will come into his presence? Who can stand before the fullness of God's glorious and holy presence? Not the Israelites. Not you. And not me. And that's because the problem of sin is a universal problem for all mankind. Now, we may not have violated every one of the Ten Commandments. We may have never worshipped a golden calf. But like the Israelites, we too are sinners. We too are descendants of Adam and Eve. 
And we too, when left to ourselves, are unworthy of standing in God's presence. That is, of course, unless our sin is somehow addressed. Unless we can somehow be forgiven and cleansed and redeemed. Maybe then, just maybe, sinners like us could stand in God's presence with no more distance and no more separation. Well, here's the good news. That is exactly what we Christians believe Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. He descended from the Father's presence in heaven to be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die a sacrificial death, and triumphantly rise from the dead so that sinners like us could be saved. So that sinners like us could once again stand in God's presence. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple, that next step after the tabernacle, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And ever since, Christians have believed that by faith in Christ, the distance, the separation, the gap between sinful mankind and holy God has been bridged. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A few chapters later, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, we read there. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of what Christ has done. All who believe in him are reconciled to the God who rightly banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. At this very moment, we can approach God in prayer, not dreading the thought of coming into his presence, but joyfully speaking to him as our father. And we can look forward to the future when we will stand in his presence in eternity. Now, this confidence that we have does not lie in what we've done To secure that right. Our confidence lies in what Christ has done on our behalf. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul references the veil that Moses would wear over his face when he exited the tent of meeting. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians that right now, Christians with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image. Because of what Christ has done for us, we don't have to hide from God's presence the way Adam and Eve did in the garden. We don't have to say, woe is me. 
We don't have to worry that we will die. We don't have to hide our faces in fear. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand at his holy place? Well, apart from God's grace, nobody. But if you are united to Christ in faith, the one who descended from heaven and gave his life for sinners on the cross, then you shall ascend the hill of the Lord. You shall stand in his holy place. Because your sin has been atoned for. The separation has been removed. The gap has been bridged. The curtain has been torn in two. And sinners like us can approach the throne of God with confidence. Enter his presence with joy. And draw near to him as his children because we have been reconciled to him by Jesus Christ. So praise God that he saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt by his mighty hand and brought them to the promised land. And praise God that he has saved us from our sin by Jesus' cross and has brought us back into his presence. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. In a sense, when we pray together as a church, like we are right now, when we pray as individuals in our bedrooms or at the kitchen table, wherever it is that we pray, in a sense, at that moment, we are coming into your presence. We are approaching you. We are asking for a hearing with you in order that we might speak with you. And again, in and of ourselves, we aren't worthy of this hearing. We don't deserve to come into your presence. We shouldn't have the audacity to demand a hearing with you. But because of your grace, because of what Christ has done for us, we can come into your presence. We can approach you with confidence. You don't keep us at arm's length. You welcome us into your presence. And Father, we are just grateful for that privilege, grateful for that honor. We could never secure that on our own, but you have generously given it to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we move forward this week, regardless of what it is that happens to us, regardless of what it is we face, we would remember that because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us, we can come into your presence at this moment. There's a lot of places we can't go, a lot of things that we are not worthy to do, a lot of things that we are not allowed to do in this world because we haven't earned that right. We don't have the clearance to go into that room or do that thing or meet that person or hear those plans, but we can come into your presence. We can approach your throne with confidence in this life, and we look forward to the day when we will stand in your presence in eternity. What a joy, what an honor. What a privilege, what a gift that is of your grace. And again, it only comes through the broken body and shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we love you. We are in awe of you. We worship you. And we thank you for Jesus. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.